Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are continuing our way through this book. Contrary to the first few chapters, we are flying at light speed now. Between last week and this week, we will, Lord willing, complete an entire chapter of this book. So take heart, those who are ready to not hear 1 Corinthians anymore. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first uh, five verses of this chapter. And in the chapters leading up to this one in 1 Corinthians, Paul has addressed the arrogance of this young church. Arrogance related to their own inflated view of themselves, arrogance related to their own view of their wise discernment, arrogance related to their own preachers and their leadership, arrogance related to their own stature. But in this chapter, Paul has something a little more concrete to address, something a little more personal. He has to address the problem of a man in public and terrible sin. What is the church to do when someone claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ but is living a life clearly inconsistent, contrary to that profession of faith? But even more, as we will see, Paul has to address a more systemic problem within the church, and that's that the church was unwilling to do what was right. The church was tolerating this sinful man in their midst, and they were acting like everything was okay. They were turning a blind eye to egregious violations of God's law, and they were even proud of it. And so Paul writes this chapter, tells them what they're to do, but we'll also see when we go through this chapter some larger principles that are operating in the mind of Paul as he thinks through both the individual and the church-wide ethical issues. He shows us how we should think about some of the pictures found in the Old Testament and how we relate them to us in the New. And he even spells out how we're supposed to relate as, sin, as uh, forgiven sinners to a sinful world. And so let's start. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read it in its entirety. Hear the word of our Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not even tolerated, even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolatry, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother 
If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it, not the, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's God's word for us tonight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you send your spirit to help us read and understand your word. We pray that your spirit would press into our hearts the truth of your word tonight. That we would see Christ even more clearly. And because of our um, seeing him more clearly, we would be able to cast out the old leaven of sin and put on righteousness. As we're called to and as is fitting for those who are forgiven. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. By way of review, last week we noted both the problem and Paul's prescription in this text, the first five verses of this text, the problem and the prescription from Paul. The problem appeared to be simple, a man in sexual sin. He was in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. But the deeper issue, the issue of far more far-reaching consequences, was that the church wasn't doing anything about it. The whole congregation was pridefully tolerating a professing brother in sexual sin. Their inaction was neither loving towards the man in sin nor honoring to God. And as we'll see tonight, their inaction was actually putting themselves in harm's way. But Paul doesn't just point out the problem. He also tells them what to do about it. Paul's prescription for the church was that they were to remove the brother so that or to the end that his soul might be saved. They were to take the man and put him out of fellowship out of what we would call membership, for the prayerful goal of both his one-day restoration to the church and especially his final day salvation. They were to hand the man over to Satan, Paul says, for the destruction of his fleshly, sinful nature in the hopes that God might bring this sinner to his senses. A lot like the prodigal son who had found out that the world wasn't all that he thought it was going to be. And that God might use that misery to bring the sinner back in repentance and save his soul on the last day. And that leads us to the remainder of the chapter, which I hope we'll finish tonight. We'll note two more points for us this evening. First, Paul gives us a picture and then a pattern. A biblical picture and then a pattern for life. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 and see the biblical picture. Paul says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of yeast is all that is needed because it will spread all the way throughout the entire lump of dough. The picture that Paul is using here is from the Old Testament celebration of Passover. Hold your fingers here and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, the second book of the Bible, in which God describes for us, through the pen of Moses, his great act of redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt. God has performed wonderful and terrifying 
plagues over the land of Egypt because the Pharaoh, the man in charge in Egypt, would not release God's people. And then because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, God promised a final plague that would kill the firstborn of every household, except for those that obeyed God and put the blood of a slaughtered lamb over their doorway. But before the lamb was to be slaughtered, before the meal was to be eaten, the people of God were first ordered to do some very particular things regarding leaven and bread in their household. Look at Exodus 12, starting in verse 14. This shall be a memorial day for you, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your house, all of the leaven. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now skip down to verse 19. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all of your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. And so the law is clear. No leaven. Total purity. No hint of contamination. If there were leaven, if somebody was found to be eating anything with leaven in it, he was to be cut off from the land. There's no gray in this text. It doesn't matter how small amounts of the leavening. It doesn't matter if it was just one little bite. Total purity was required. And that's the peril that is revealed in this picture. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It won't do to remove 99% of the leaven in your household or in your nation. The entirety must be purified 100%. And this is the picture that Paul is applying in a spiritual way to the situation back in 1 Corinthians. You see, on the surface, the application is clear. The unrepentant sinner engaging in public and egregious sexual sin must be removed. He is leaven among the congregation. His sin is the yeast that, if not removed, will spread through the entire lump. Purification of the congregation is needed. No tolerated sin in their midst. But then Paul moves beyond a congregational application and he pushes into some individual levels of application. Look at verse 7, back in 1 Corinthians 5. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He's aiming at more than simply church discipline and casting out an unrepentant sinner. He's applying the picture of Passover purification to each believer. He's describing the radical break with sin that he commands throughout his various writings. We are called as children of God to be distinct from the world. We're called to cast off sin. We're called to crucify the flesh with its desires. We're, cast, we're called to put off the old man, to remove the leaven. And this is because in our own lives, just as in the life of the congregation, tolerated sin leads to sin's acceptance. Tolerated sin leads to sin's 
acceptance, if you toy with sin, even a little bit, it will grow. And it will grow until the leaven has leavened the entire lump. It's similar to what James says in chapter 1 of his letter. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it matures, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Sin is like leavening of the soul. It will bubble up into all the little nooks and crannies of our lives until the entire lump of dough has been infected. And this imperative is for each of us to do in our own lives. Am I seeking actively and intentionally to clean out any remaining leaven in my soul? Have I checked all of the counters, all of the bowls, all of the pans in the kitchen of my soul? thoroughly endeavoring to root out any leaven wherever it may be hiding? Or am I a little half-hearted? Am I a little lazy in my cleaning out of the leaven of sin? You can go back and almost imagine the Hebrews in Exodus 12 tempted towards laxity in this area. Listen, Moses, I, I cleaned out the mixing bowl. I washed the spoon. Surely that's enough. That's what Satan wants us to believe. You've cleaned out enough. Don't worry yourself about every little detail. That's what the legalists and the fundamentalists do. You don't want to be like them, do you? That's the, the fanatics, the religious nuts. Nobody's perfect. Don't stress yourself out. It's just a little bit of yeast. You can't even see it. It's microscopic. It's not hurting anybody. What's the big deal? That's not what God's law says. God's law demands total purity. God's holiness requires that we be perfectly purified. Perfectly free of the leaven of sin. And that's the bad news. The bad news is that each of us have some sin. There's no scrubbing that we can do that will sufficiently purify us of our sin. We were born in sin and we were born sinning. We, we lie to get what we want. We embellish the truth to make ourselves look a little better. We look discontentedly at what we've been given by God and we look covetously at that which was given to others. We've got a leaven problem. Scripture makes it clear. Our entire lump has been leavened by sin. We are permeated with it. But we're given some wonderful news in this text. Did you catch it? Look at the end of verse 7. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul reminds us here that Christ is our Passover lamb and that he has been sacrificed on Calvary. That's the good news, that Christ is the perfect, spotless uncontaminated lamb that was pictured as just a shadow and a type in Exodus 12. And that lamb was slain so that the people of God may be passed over in judgment. That is Christ. Christ was without spot or blemish. Christ was slaughtered in the place of his sinful people. Christ and his blood is the purifying agent that allows us to be forgiven of our sentence of guilty and for the judgment of death to pass over us. Christ is the fulfillment of all of what Exodus 12 and the Passover was about. And that's the good news of Scripture, that we can be forgiven because another has died in our place. We can be purified because another's perfect blood stands between us and judgment. 
Do you believe in that Christ? Do you have the blood of Christ pleading for your forgiveness? If you trust in him, then you too have been made clean and made pure by faith in him. But if you haven't yet come to Christ, then this story is also a picture for you. But you aren't the one to be passed over. If you remain in your sin and continue to reject Christ, then the angel of judgment will come and bring nothing but death for you. Christ will return as the messenger of death and he will speak judgment to all who remain in their sin of unbelief. Don't let that be your fate. Come and see Christ, the Savior, the spotless Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world so that his people might be purged of the leaven of their sin. He too can be your Savior if you would believe in him today. And it doesn't matter how much leaven you've got. It doesn't matter how much sin you've committed. Christ can make you clean. Christ can make you pure. Trust in that Passover lamb who is indeed the lamb of God given to take away the sins of the world. But before we leave this picture of Passover, a few other things should be noticed in our text. For example, notice how Paul connects what God has done with what we are to do. How he connects what God has done with what we are to do. That is, the indicatives of what God has done with the imperatives of what we are to do. And this is crucial for a healthy understanding of the Christian life. And it can be subtle. But it's at the heart of all thriving religion. Notice again verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's the imperative there. Cleanse out the old leaven. That's what we are to do. That's our job. That's the law. But we don't do this in order that we might be saved. Keep reading. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, comma, as you really are unleavened. There's the indicative. You really are unleavened. That's what God has done for us. That's the gospel. We don't cleanse out the leaven so that we might be unleavened. We are made unleavened of sin by Christ, the unleavened bread of life himself. And then in light of that work, that prior work by Christ, we then fight against the remaining leaven within us. This is typical Pauline argumentation. Cleanse out the leaven because you're already unleavened. He's saying this, act in a manner consistent with who you are. Be who you are. Act in a manner consistent with who you are in Christ. It's incongruous for us to be unleavened people and then act in a manner as if we are leavened. It's inconsistent for us to be made holy in Christ and live in an unholy and worldly way. That's why Paul says things. In other places, like if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. God's people have been made new, and in light of their being made new by God's gracious action, they ought to act like it. Which is then what Paul moves to in verse 8. Again, applying the language of the Passover celebration to the spiritual lives of new covenant Believers, He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, that's Passover, using that spiritual language, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying, if 
we have been made unleavened by God, if Christ has been sacrificed as our Passover lambs, then we ought to behave in a certain way. We ought to remove certain things pertaining to the old leaven of sin. We ought to put on certain things pertaining to the new creation that we are in Christ. He specifically lists putting off the leaven, the old leaven of malice and evil. These are complementary terms. They're in many ways synonymous. Together they represent the whole manner of fallen sinful nature, the old man. They represent a disposition of sinners oriented away from God and towards sinful desires of self. And in relation to the new life that we're about to discuss, these terms emphasize an orientation towards darkness and unrighteousness. We contrast that with the new life in the Spirit, which Paul describes as the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. They are aspects of the new life in Christ that should mark every believer. And in many ways, they're the opposite of the vices just discussed. If malice and evil pertain to darkness and unrighteousness, Sincerity and truth pertain to light and righteousness. In fact, the word sincere is a wonderful illustration of this. Sincere comes from a word back in Roman times where pottery would be stamped with the words, the Latin word sincere, which is Latin for without wax, which meant that the pottery had been put through the fires and it had been tested and proven to be without wax, sincere. And therefore worthy of use and genuine. Christians likewise ought to live lives that are sincere. Without the wax of hypocrisy and hidden sins. So that the genuineness of their profession might shine through their lives. And so to wrap up this point. The church is called to holiness. They were called to cast off the leaven of sin. Specifically casting out the unrepentant sinner. But more than that, they were to model holiness in their own lives by casting out the leaven of sin wherever they find it and pursuing the unleavened bread of righteousness and all of this in light of the work done by Christ, our sacrificed Passover lamb. Next, let's move from a biblical picture and see Paul explain the pattern for life. Paul's pattern for life. And to put it very succinctly, the pattern that he instructs us in is this. The Corinthians were to watch what is on the inside, knowing that God will handle the outside. Watch what is on the inside, knowing that God will handle the outside. Let's look at verse 9 and see how he builds towards this pattern. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. So what Paul says here in verse 9 is that he had written a previous letter. It would be not 1 Corinthians but half Corinthians if we found it I guess. Prior to this letter. We don't have this letter but we get a glimpse into part of what he said in it. He told them not to associate with immoral people. But they were taking that to mean something Paul didn't intend. His point was this. It would be impossible for you to remove yourself from any association with immoral people. It would have been impossible to be a businessman in Corinth and yet not do business with sinners. Same thing today. You couldn't own a business today and not deal with sinful people. Sinners are everywhere. And to withdraw from any associations with sinful people would mean a full-on retreat 
from the world. We'd mean we'd have to construct for ourselves monasteries and separate ourselves from the world, which the church has tried, but is contrary to what the New Testament teaches. Jesus, Paul, the rest of the New Testament do not teach that we are to retreat from the world. The Bible is clear that we are to be in the world, just not of the world. Prepositions are important. Meaning that, yes, we interact with and to a degree associate with sinners in this world. But we are not to be of the world. Meaning that we do not adopt for ourselves the spiritual and ethical spirit of this age. We are citizens of a heavenly country. We are new creations in Christ. We are a spirit-filled people. A body of Christ with a spiritual charter, and thus we are not to be engaged with the world in a way that is contrary to our new spiritual condition in Christ. I've preached on this in preceding sermons, so I won't linger here. The point is that Paul isn't calling them or us to retreat from engagement with sinners in the world. Rather, the prohibition against associating with sexually immoral people refers to those within the church. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. His instruction against fellowshipping with the sexually immoral was specifically a command to remove the unrepentant sinner from the assembly. Don't tolerate unrepentant sin, Paul says. Don't go down the road of choosing what kind of sins are okay and what kind of sins really aren't that big a deal. We don't have that kind of authority. Rather, we are called, indeed commanded, to bar from fellowship anyone who tries to retain the name of brother but persists in their sin. And not just sexual sin. Paul lists also greed, reviling, drunkenness, theft. The church is to be markedly different from the world in these areas. Rather than being marked by sexual immorality, which is again the word porneia, like we discussed last week, where we get pornography, means any kind of sinful fornication, adultery, unnatural sexual relationship. Rather than being marked by this kind of sin, the people of God are called to purity, to holiness in the realm of sexuality. Believers are called to be marked by their devotion to their spouse. Marked by the seemingly outdated virtues of chastity, of purity. Their eyes should not wander to that which does not belong to them, and their feet should not take them where their body doesn't belong. They should be vigilantly guarding the good gift of marriage that God has given to them, seeing it as the glorious thing that it is, a beautiful picture of the gospel itself. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. But Paul doesn't only list sexual sin, he also mentions greed. Are we believers distinct from the world in our view of our own worldly possessions? Are we marked by the Christian virtues of generosity and faithful trust in the provision of our Heavenly Father? Or are we just like the world, clamoring for more and more stuff? Are we worried about money and about interest and about bills Pagans worry about such things. We've been given a Passover lamb at the cost of God's own son's life. If he didn't hold back his own son, will he not give you everything that you need? And if that's the case, then what have you to be greedy about? 
Paul mentions also idolatry, which is loving something, anything, more than God. And a few diagnostic questions quickly tell us if some idols have risen up in our life. What is it that keeps you up late at night? What dominates your thoughts? Usually indicates the presence of some idol. Similarly, how are you spending your money and your time? Your money and your time are usually your most valuable commodities you have. And we spend those things on the things that are important to us. A quick check on what's important in my life. Next, Paul mentions a reviler. That's someone who uses their tongue to criticize, to cut down, to tear, and to destroy. In a lot of senses, a reviler can do more damage than a violent man because a reviler has wounds that are invisible. Revilers demean, they weaken, they crush their opponents and do it without laying a finger upon them. They use their lips to curse someone made in the image of God and they often use their keyboards to murder someone's reputation online. God's people are not to behave in such a satanic manner. Instead, as God's new creations, we are called to instead use our words to impart grace and life to others. Because that's what God has done for us. God has spoken his very word of life into our hearts. He has revived our souls. And he's done that, enabling us to bless others by pointing them with our words back to our gracious God himself. We're not to be like the world which bites and devours its own. He also lists a drunkard and a swindler, a thief. I'll let you apply those to your own life. The point is this. God's people should be concerned with what is on the inside. With what's on the inside of their hearts and what's on the inside of their church. And if there remains unrepentant sin in the church, then we are to cast out the leaven. Not even to eat with such a one. And why is that? Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here again is the pattern stated. Watch what's on the inside. God will handle the outside. We're not called to judge the world. That's not our job. That's not our domain. We're called to judge what's inside of the church according to the purity of God's word. See, it would be easy to preach a sermon and to get a lot of amens by talking about the wickedness out there. You could blast sinners for acting like sinners and the wicked for behaving in a wicked way. You could blast whatever policy, whatever party, whatever it is. But that's not Paul's concern, and that shouldn't be our concern. Of course, the world is acting worldly. Of course sinners act like sinners. The real problem is when professing saints act like sinners. You see, at least the world is acting consistent with their profession. Unlike the man who professes belief but acts in an unbelieving way. It's inconsistent. Our job isn't to purge the world of worldliness. Our job is to purge God's temple of any leaven. And if we've been made 
children of God and passed over in judgment because of the lamb that was sacrificed in our place, then we ought to act in a manner consistent with our profession, consistent with our new nature. We'll talk more about the specifics of that in coming sermons, but the point from this chapter is clear. The leaven of sin is deadly, and it will spread if it's left unchecked. The only solution is to cast it out, not to make peace with it, not to hide it over in the corner, not to try and isolate it. Cast it out. Get it away. Believers, if we're toying with sin of any kind, then let these words sober you and compel you to action. Seek out the remaining leaven in your life and cast it out, lest you be ensnared by it and be cast out yourself. And for those who have yet to believe in Christ, then be warned that this casting out from the church is but a small foretaste of the final casting out that will take place at the end of time. Christ will come and he will cast out all sinners, every one of them who don't have Christ's blood over them. And he will cast them into total darkness, Scripture said. Eternal punishment. Don't wait for that. Hear the truth of Scripture. Read of the Christ in the pages of his word. Trust in Christ, our great Passover lamb, and and read of how it only takes faith in him to receive cleansing, purification, and forgiveness. Only he can remove the leaven of sin from your life. Only Christ can remove the leaven of sin from your life. Trust in him, and you too can be made pure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to make us holy. Help us to trust in Christ, and by trusting in him, be made holy ourselves. Help us to live in a manner consistent with our confession. We ask this in Jesus' name.